The text for tonight is Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is the 14th sermon in the book of Malachi. We are a big fan of verse-by-verse expository preaching. I like to learn the Bible. I'm more interested that you learn the Bible than me telling you a funny story. I'm not interested in making you laugh. I'm interested that you hear God's Word truthfully and accurately. Bottom line up front, there it is. I'm not going to give uh, an introduction to Malachi. Those are all online. And there are some lengthy introductions. For those of you who have been here before, you can attest to that. I just want to jump right into the text. There's a man writing this. His name is Malachi. It's around the time 460 B.C. The Persians are in control of the known world. And the people of Judah, it's a time of spiritual darkness. And chapter 4, verse 1 says this. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Pause. Let's unpack this. Malachi says, there's coming a day which hasn't yet happened yet. And when it does come, it will be like a burning oven. And it will reduce... The wicked and the evil to stubble. There's a day, it's coming, hasn't yet come. In fact, even as I speak right now, this day has not yet arrived. But it will arrive. And it will be like a burning oven. If you're thinking right now about your Kenmore electric range, probably not what Malachi had in mind, though ovens were somewhat different at that time in the in the first century, though serving at times similar purposes. But there's a day, and it's coming. It's going to be pretty intense. So intense that the arrogant and the evil will be made like stubble. So there's two results or two stages from this coming day, which hasn't happened yet. And the first is that the arrogant and the evil will be made like stubble. In the original language, the word stubble would refer to something that was worthless. Something that was worthless. So there's a day, it's going to be very intense, it's like a burning oven, and it's going to do one of two things. It's first going to make the evil and the wicked like stubble, something that is pretty worthless. And then if that wasn't enough, the second thing that it's going to do is it's going to set them on fire. So it goes from bad to worse. And... uh One sentence. In case that wasn't enough, making them stubble, the wicked will be set on fire. The result is, as Malachi says, is this. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And here he likens the wicked to a tree that's been caught on fire. And perhaps you've driven by the aftermath of a a blaze or a forest fire, or seeing pictures online or on TV, and it's uh, pretty bleak. Not a lot going on. Not a lot of life. Well, this fire, this coming day, is so intense and so powerful that... It strips the tree completely of its branches, which you might expect, but then something maybe a little less expected. It says even its roots, which are under the ground and somewhat protected, even the roots 
will not be. There's a scene from a movie I enjoy, a Mel Gibson movie, not The Passion of the Christ. Surprise, surprise. It's a scene, it's a movie called We Were Soldiers. Uh, Mel Gibson plays the character of Colonel Hal Moore. And it details the first major battle in Vietnam in the Idrang Valley. And there's a scene in which an American soldier catches on fire. It's a pretty gruesome scene. And he's, he's on fire. There was this bomb, explosive bomb. It went off. He's on fire. His buddies are trying to put the fire out and they finally get it out. And then by the time they get it out, half his body has been charred. It's, it's, it's very gruesome. And they're trying to take him over to the, to the helicopter, to the medevac chopper, to get him out. Trying to help him out. They're trying to get him uh, to a place of escape, a place of refuge. And when they go to pick him up, they instantly drop him. Because when they grab his arms and legs, the skin just pulls right off of his arms and legs. Like after they, they put the fire out, it was so hot, so intense, so powerful that... There really was no escape for him. Malachi is saying, there is coming a day. It hasn't yet arrived yet. But when it does, the hammer will be dropped. And there will be no escape. On that day, it is like a burning oven. And it is so hot and so intense that he likens the wicked to a tree being completely burnt down that not even its roots are left in place. Nothing more than just ash. Fire. Fire is an important end times element that we find in Scripture. We see it in passages like Joel 2.3, often appearing in apocalyptic descriptions. The New American Commentary citing Blazing and Bach note that John the Baptist, who is no stranger to the book of Malachi, you may remember from chapter 3, verse 1, but Blazing and Bach note that John the Baptist employed literary features from this very verse in another passage of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 3, 10 to 12, we see John the Baptist employing the same literary features found here in Malachi 4.1. And I don't like to jump around in the text a lot. I like going verse by verse. But I think it will behoove us and serve some purpose to go to Matthew chapter 3, but for a moment to see how John the Baptist employs the literary features in Malachi 4.1 in that text so that we might squeeze Malachi 4.1 like a sponge and get as much out of it as we possibly can. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, this is what it says. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree's Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's referring to Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Understanding how these literary features work is my goal today for us. This phrase in verse 11, sandwiched between verses 10 and 12, it says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And there are, or there is, a little debate on what this actually is referring to. So I'll give you a couple views. I'll be fair and balanced here, and you guys can decide for yourselves which view you like. One view is that interpreters take this part of the Holy Spirit baptism, which began at Pentecost, and which in that instance was accompanied by tongues of fire, see Acts 2.3. However, the Acts account says that those tongues appeared to them, that is, it appeared to the waiting disciples, it appeared as a fire. It doesn't say that they actually were fire, it says that they appeared to them as fire, that it looked like fire. In his last promise of the soon coming baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said nothing about actual fire being part of the experience. Acts 1.5 And when a short time later Cornelius and his household were baptized with the Holy Spirit, no fire was present. You can confer with Acts 10.44, 11.16, 8.17, and 19.6. And so others would interpret this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire to represent a, a spiritual cleansing, as described in Ezekiel 36, 25-26, the, the new covenant promise in which it says that He will replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh and cause us to walk in the Lord's rules. However, in this second view of it being a spiritual cleansing, the problem is, is that nothing in Ezekiel's text in the context of John's message here, or in the Pentecost reference to the tongues as a fire relates to such a cleansing. Yet there's a third view, which I am inclined to favor. The third view sees the fire in 3.11 as representing God's coming judgment, which, as we've seen, is frequently symbolized by fire in Scripture. In both the preceding and the following verses, verse 10 and 12, John clearly uses fire to represent judgment and punishment. Therefore, it would seem unlikely that the middle reference to fire in verse 11 would concern an entirely different subject, since both the preceding and the following verses contrast the fates of believers and unbelievers, those who bear good fruit, those who don't. Verse 10, the valuable wheat and the worthless chaff, verse 12. I think it seems natural, therefore, to take verse 11 also as a contrast between believers, those baptized with the Holy Spirit, here it is, 
and unbelievers, those baptized with the fire of God's judgment. Now, the problem that we run into today is that we often have a tendency to give words meaning through our 2016 lens. So we see a word and we have a meaning that we've already associated with that word. And then when we read that same word back into Scripture... We make the mistake not of reading it and understanding it as the author may have designed and intended it to, but as we have already associated that meaning with that word. So we read the meaning back into the text, which is a no-no. It's a common hermeneutical error and mistake. In fact, I imagine, especially given... The way that John the Baptist and Malachi were using these words, I'm sure if they were at, say, a Jesus culture conference and they were singing about fire rain down on us, they'd probably say, can you hang on a second because we want to get out of here as quickly as possible before that actually happens. Since most of the time in Scripture when it talks about fire, it usually, not always, but usually is in reference to some type of judgment. Those are common things we make. We just associate a certain meaning with a word, and then when we see it in the text, we think, oh, well, it obviously means this because that's how it means to me in 2016. But did it mean that to the author in 460 B.C. as for Malachi or to John the Baptist in the first century? So if we understand that fire in the majority of instances in Scripture is a reference to judgment, then I'm probably not sounding super encouraging right now. I'm probably sounding kind of like a Johnny Raincloud for some of you in here today. Like, you're talking about, Malachi is talking about this coming day, and it's going to just suck, and people are going to be like stubble, and they're going to be burned up like a tree, and then it's got no roots and no branches, and this is Easter. Wow, this is not my typical Easter service. All right, hang on, hang on. Bear with me. Because John is going to give us some consolation. John is going to give us some good news. Warning for unbelievers, but good news for the people of God. Today is Easter, 2016 in the year of our Lord. It's a day of good news. It's a day of great joy, just as his birth was. You may remember the angels came. They said, we bring tidings of good news and great joy. Today is the culmination of that. It is the apex of his glory. But we sometimes miss that. He came here, born of the Virgin Mary. Why? He came to die. It was that way from the very beginning. He was on a rescue mission to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, to pay the price that we could not afford to pay. The good news today in view of what Malachi is saying about this coming day that hasn't yet happened, the good news is that for the people of God, they don't have to experience that. The good news for the people of God is that they will escape from that. That day which Malachi has foretold will come. It will be a bleak day for unbelievers. It will be a bleak day for even those who, some claim the name of Christ, who are not actually believers. Today is a message of hope. It's a message of good news. That this day that's coming, 
won't affect us. And I would argue that this message, the message of the resurrected king of the universe, is just as good news also for those of you in here who might not be a believer. Or for those of you in here who think that you are a Christian, in reality, you're probably not a Christian. If you would but believe and place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and repent of your sins. More about that later. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3.12. Matthew chapter 3.12, it says, And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff or the straw with unquenchable fire. Now, I don't know much about farming. Any farmers in here? Any people that know about farming? Apparently, I'm not alone. I, I grew up, born and raised in the great state of Alaska, and uh, not a big farming industry up there. Maybe a little in the Matanuska Valley, but you know, Everyone's like, yes, yeah, because it's frozen all the time. Yep. Save your Alaska jokes for after the service. <laughs> ah. Some of you guys, oh, I thought of a good one. I'm going to write that down right now. And so I had to look this up because he's talking about a threshing floor and a fork. And I'm like, okay, this is probably a different type of, type of fork than I just put in the dishwasher earlier. So what's going on? So break this down for you. In Palestine, as well as many other parts of the ancient world, farmers would make a threshing floor. So we're going to talk about what is a threshing floor. Well, a threshing floor would usually be located where there might be a depression in the ground. I don't mean like a sinkhole, but like a depression. So the ground is going to kind of come inward a little. And if there's not one, we can improvise, we can make one. Because sometimes they would do that when I was researching this. And they also would place this on a hill, ideally. A sloping hill or nearby a hill, so a breeze might pass its way. And that was that was crucial. Then what they would do is they would wet and pack the ground down very hard and very firm. And when they were done with that, they would take rocks and they would put it all around the perimeter. And this might be 30 or 40 feet in diameter, this threshing floor. And at this point, I'm thinking, That's a, that sounds like a giant fire pit to me. Not sure what a threshing floor is, but a fire pit, yeah, that makes sense. So if it helps you to think about it that way, then if you picture a fire pit, that's cool. And so once they'd be finished with this, they would take the harvest, they would take everything, and they would bring it to the threshing floor. This 30 or 40 foot in diameter circle uh, with a slight depression, ideally on a sloping hill with rocks around to keep everything inside. And then the farmers would take their forks and they would throw the wheat into the air, at which point the wind would come and the wind would blow away the straw and the chaff. And the heavy pieces of wheat, the kernels of wheat, would fall to the threshing floor, which that's what you wanted. I didn't know that either. But you wanted the heavy the pieces, the kernels of wheat. That was the good part. And it would blow away the, the chaff and the straw, the really insignificant part. And they continue doing this, repeating the process until all the chaff and all the straw had blown away until only the good kernels of wheat were left there in the threshing floor. Only what was good and useful would be left. And in a similar way, the Messiah will separate out everyone who belongs to him. Like a farmer, he will gather the good kernels of wheat from 
the threshing floor into his barn where it will be forever safe and forever protected. But he will take the chaff and the straw that was blown away and he will burn it up with an unquenchable fire. The long-awaited Messiah, he would perform both of these functions, though perhaps not in the time nor in the sequence that John the Baptist and Malachi may have thought. I'm sure when Malachi says this, there is a day and it's coming, it's going to be like a burning oven. He probably thought for all intents and purposes that it would happen in his lifetime. And yet even as I speak right now, we wait for this day. This final separation, the ultimate judgment at the second coming of Christ, when the unsaved will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is the significance of today. That for those who love God, for those who hope in God, for those who fear God, that day you don't have to be afraid of. Those heavy kernels of wheat are protected and they're safe. But this is, this is real for everyone else. And the problem here is that this warning in Malachi 4.1, for most of the world today, it's not much of a warning at all. It really isn't. I, Think of most of my encounters where I'm sharing the gospel with people and I'm telling them about the good news of Jesus. And I am asking them questions to figure out where they're coming from, to get a flavor. Like a doctor might say, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Just like a spiritual doctor, I'm just trying to gauge where are they at in their life. And I get to the point where I might ask them, do you believe in heaven or hell? And where do you think you would go if you die? in which the typical response, a typical response is, I think I'd go to heaven. Why? And the justification of that is, is because I'm a good person. So when people hear the warning, ooh, that doesn't sound good. The arrogant and the evil will be stubble, and the wicked are going to be set on fire. That sucks for them. There's no concern for the unbeliever. They think they're okay. They think we're, we're, we're fine. We don't have to worry because we're, we're pretty good people. We're not like these arrogant, wicked people. We're not like them. We're, we're pretty good. That's the mindset of most of the people I, I talk to. They're not familiar with Isaiah 64, 6. And the prophet says, even your most righteous works are like filthy rags. Ooh, not so good. They don't understand their sinfulness in front of a holy God. And I usually use the illustration like this. If, uh, Josh Super, no? You're in the front. So, so if Josh came up to me right now, he just finished leading worship and in a moment of his unredeemed flesh decides to come up here and just start punching me in the face, how many of you would argue that he might get in a little bit of trouble? Just show of hands. 
Some of you are like, ah, oh, pastor wouldn't press charges. But maybe some of you don't. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I would have said he wouldn't press charges, but then we picked up the guitar and started just hitting him with it. You know, that, that went over the top. So some of you would probably say, yes, I think he would get in, in some trouble. And, but how many of you would agree with me in saying that if he did the same thing to the President of the United States, he would get in more trouble than if he did it to, with me? And you say, why? Because he is the President. See, most people think, oh, I'm a good person, right? But they don't see themselves in relation to a holy God. They don't see themselves, the prophet Isaiah says, your most righteous works, the very best things you could do to God. He looks at it and filthy rags. They don't see it in light of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. The whole point of which you don't do anything to save yourself. I've said countless number of times, the message of the gospel is that you suck. That's the message of the gospel. That you're so dirty, that you're so filthy, that you can't clean yourself up and make yourself in a right standing before a holy God. Only Jesus can do that. Because it was only Him who lived the life we could not live. It was Him that died the death we should have died. It was Him that paid the price we could not afford to pay. So that's one of the problems that we run into. Malachi's warning, not much of a warning at all because most people think, oh, I'm good, I'm safe, I'm secure. The second problem that we run into is this. And I've seen this happen numerous times. For those of you, uh, if you're new here, I'm an Army Reserve chaplain uh, on the side when I'm not doing the full-time pastor thing. And so I've had countless of conversations with soldiers within the the field of the Disneyland version of Christianity that we call it here in America. And I still remember one such conversation. And I'm telling you this as to why this warning isn't a warning to people. I'm having a conversation. Remember, it was December a couple of years ago. My soldiers were at the range. It's snowing outside. It's cold. It sucks. Sounds just like the army on most days. And... uh I'm talking to these two soldiers. The one soldier, he's just kind of there, like, just listening. I'm mainly talking to this other soldier. And in the middle of the conversation, the soldier on my right says, Sir, I'm sorry. Sorry, chaplain. I just want to say something. And he looks at the other soldier with genuine concern in his eyes. He says, Now, I just want to make sure that you're saved. And the other soldier says, Saved? Like, what do you mean? He says, I just want to make sure that you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, that you've prayed the sinner's prayer, that you done did that. And he says... I think I did that. Okay, okay, just, just wanted to make sure you were safe. Continue, chaplain. Which I was surprised for more reasons than you may think. But that's, that's the American version of Christianity. Um, David Platt, who's president of the International Mission Board, and I've heard him pose this question before. Should it concern us that the phrase, ask Jesus to come into our heart is found nowhere in the Bible. I've heard him ask that question numerous times, including one of the times he spoke at Liberty. Should it not concern us that the sinner's prayer is found nowhere in the Bible? I remember when I found that out, that was a couple of years ago, it's like, what? Heretic? I was even more surprised because the soldier who genuinely out of concern said that, I knew that soldier, but what I did not know about that soldier is that 
He even claimed to be a Christian because there was zero evidence in his life that he actually was a follower of God. I'm thinking, wait, what? It's like, what is going on here? I'm really confused. And that is part of the problem that we run into. There is a day, it's coming, it hasn't yet arrived. It will be like a burning furnace. He will drop the hammer. And so many people think, I'm good. I'm safe. I'm secure. Only to be shocked out of their flipping minds when they stand before the God of the universe and they say, Jesus, Lord. And he says, why are you calling me Lord? I don't know you. Away from me. And like the chaff and like the straw, they are cast away into utter darkness, into a place of suffering called hell for all of eternity. Here's, I think, what is even more interesting. Earlier on in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist doing really awesome things in the wilderness. The kingdom of God, it's just rocking like a hurricane. Pop culture uh, reference intended. Thank you. Uh, and some of the religious leaders, they came and they're like, Oh, hey, yo, John, baptize me. And John's like, very much in a similar way I was with that soldier when he says it. I'm thinking, wait, wait, they love God? This soldier loves God? Because I know this soldier, and there's zero evidence that he loves God, and yet these people are coming to John in the wilderness saying, Baptize me, John. It's interesting what he doesn't say. He says, he doesn't say, Have you guys prayed the sinner's prayer? Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? Nope, doesn't say that. He knows these people like I knew that soldier, and he's like, What? You've got to be kidding me. You brood of vipers. I'm sure if we translated that to modern day language, might have a PG-13 rating on it, so I'll be careful not even say it. But he says, you brood of vipers bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't come here to be baptized and you give absolutely zero evidence that you even love God. I wonder if I brought each and every one of you up here and put you in a chair and we had all your friends come around and I said... You face that way, and you all sat here like this, facing that way. I said, you guys know so-and-so, you know Joe. How many of you think that there's enough evidence to convict them of being a Christian? I'm sure for some of you it would be instant guilty. And some of the others would be like, is there, uh, I don't, I don't know, like, it's those people that I, that I'm concerned about. I'll give you another illustration from the Bible. James chapter 2. love this story. Here's a dude. His name's James. He's Jesus' little brother. Pastor at the church of Jerusalem. Had a similar issue. You know how people say, oh, Christians are just hypocrites. In my opinion, sometimes yes. But in other times, no, they're not hypocrites because they're not Christians. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions, Titus 1.16. Put that in your lunchbox and hang on to it. So, James says this. He's dealing with this issue, kind of like I am, and was that day with the, the soldier. He's like, wait, what? These people are saying, James, I love your brother Jesus. He is the man. And he's like, wait, you, you guys love my brother Jesus? Oh, we love Jesus. Really? 
He's really taken off guard. This is the, I'm paraphrasing it, the faith in the works passage. Maybe you're familiar with. And he's, he's saying, wait, 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 you, you say you love Jesus, but question, has anything ever changed in your life? You say you love Jesus, you say that you're a Christian, is there any change in your life? No. Still having sex. Not married. Still putting my hands all over my girlfriend. Still looking at things on the computer I shouldn't be looking at. Still lying, still gossiping, still doing lots of things. So nothing's changed. No, not really. Okay, well that's a problem. Now, let me be clear. Sometimes change happens in different spiritual levels. Sometimes when we look at our lives, there's very little evidence. Sometimes we look really hard and there is fruit, oftentimes for new believers. It's like, oh, I have to look really hard. Okay, I can see it. And sometimes through spiritual highs and lows, there may be different amounts and degrees of evidence. But there always is. There always is. James goes on to the most, one of the more famous passages in the Bible and he says, faith without works is dead. Essentially, you can say that you love Jesus all day long, but if it's not evident in your life, it's not real faith. Paraphrase, he says, don't come and tell me that you love my brother Jesus and nothing has changed in your life. Don't do that. Don't come and tell me that you met my brother Jesus and nothing changed. Because that's impossible. Because my brother Jesus, he changes everything. You cannot meet Jesus in a saving way and nothing ever change in your life. Unfortunately, you don't hear that very often, which is why I'm saying it. Because when I learned these things as a college senior, I was like, this, I've never heard of this biblical view of Christianity ever. Let me say this again. Change happens at different degrees because I don't want to totally discourage you, but I do want you to think about this. If I'm a Christian and Jesus has saved me, is there change in my life? Is there any difference? Because if if I say there's no change, that all I know is facts and Sunday school answers about him, it's entirely possible that maybe I've never met him in a saving way and I run the risk of being like the chaff and the straw that's blown away. I run the risk of being the character in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 who stand before Jesus only to have the surprise of their life when they meet him and he says, I don't know you. I don't think there could be a more terrifying encounter than that. And yet, this is Easter. And this is a day of good news. Even for the people who say, I don't love God. Even for the people who maybe there is never been change in their life. There is no fruit in their life. It is a message of good news because this is what Malachi goes on to say. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they 
will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This coming day, which we've talked about so far in great detail, yes, it's bad news for the wicked, but it's great news for the people of God because it will be healing for them. In the ancient Near East, it was common to depict the sun's rays as the wings of a bird. See Psalms 139.9. And the connection with healing comes from the imagery of a bird's protective wings. Deuteronomy 32.11. The healing announced here in verse 2, it will be complete physical, spiritual, and emotional healing. Some of you people in here, some of us in here, and you, you, you love God with all your heart. You fear God. And you, you, you deal with chronic physical pain all the time. It brings you to tears as you battle through it. Some of you in here, you, you battle with depression and loneliness and just feeling sad. Some of you growing up, like mom and dad, were verbally or physically or emotionally abusive, or you came out of a relationship, maybe the guy took advantage of you or raped you or something happened and you still struggle and, and even you could be out driving around and just the slightest thing triggers your memory and you just start crying your eyes out. And even as a Christian, you still battle with these hurt and with these really painful things. I know there's more than just one in here. And the good news is that this healing, it will be total. It will be permanent. He will swallow up death forever. And he will wipe away every tear from our faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth, as Isaiah 25, 8 says. And the source of this healing will be the substitutionary atonement of the suffering servant. For by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. The results of the healing work of the Son of Righteousness is excitement. He, he, he depicts the, the people like calves going forth and they're, 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 they're excited because they're, they're newborn calves and I don't know anything about calves but apparently they get excited and they get outside and they run around and they play because it's exciting. As today we remember what this day is and he conquered sin and he conquered death on this day. So he gives this vivid imagery of the calves running out and he mentions how they're, they're trampling over those old ashes from the wicked. Remember the tree imagery? They're, they're running over them. It's the only little reference he gives to them. And they're happy and they're excited because on this day, they have been completely and forever delivered from darkness on this day. On this day, they've been completely delivered from pain. On this day, they've been completely delivered from grief. On this day, this coming day that Malachi speaks of, a day that hasn't yet happened, they have been completely delivered from sin. It's the day made possible by Easter. Think of the ramifications of the suffering servant on the cross 
That one day he's going to wipe away every tear. One day that physical and emotional grief and pain and hurt that you still carry with you, even though Jesus has saved you, will be forever gone. Like, I don't know. Like, if that doesn't pump you up, I don't know what's going to pump you up. God is preparing a day, a day that Malachi has foreseen, a day that has not yet come, in which the good kernels of wheat will be taken, secured, safe. For all those who place their faith in our great God and King and resurrected Savior, for all those who turn from their sin, who repent, for all those who bow and submit to His Lordship over their life, then you don't have to be afraid of this coming day in which the hammer will be dropped on the wicked. What you need to know is that salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And that regardless of which one of those three camps you're in, whether you're the people of God, whether you don't love God, or whether you think you're a Christian, you're like, I don't even think there's ever been any change ever in my life. There is hope for you. This is a message of good news that you don't have to endure this coming day of wrath and judgment if you would but place your faith in Jesus. And so I want to pray for us right now. God, we love you. You rock. We are nothing without you. We owe you everything. And God, for those of us in here who who love you, who have been saved by you, I pray that they would be encouraged. I pray that they would know that there is coming a day in which you will wipe away every tear, that every physical, spiritual, emotional pain that they still carry with them will one day be gone forever, totally, completely. Thank you. And for the other people in the other categories, maybe the, the people with, that are just living in this Disneyland of American Christianity, they say they love you, but there's no evidence, there's no fruit whatsoever. I don't mean those who have maybe a little, but I mean none whatsoever. No change has ever happened in their life. I pray that perhaps right now, in a very Second Timothy 2.25 way, you might perhaps grant them a heart of repentance, that you might perhaps do a miracle in their lives and change them. Change them for the very first time. So when this day comes, they too can experience how awesome you are. Not that, not just that they're spared from this future day, but that they get to be with you, Jesus, forever. And you're awesome. We need you, God. We need you desperately. We love you. Amen.